Welcome to Joyful Eating for PCOS and Gut Health, ultimate podcast to learn how to find relief from hormonal and digestive pains while preserving the pleasure of eating. You'll learn from your host, Trista Chan, a registered dietitian and founder of The Good Life Dietitian, along with guest experts on how to understand your health through science and mind-body connection, which diet trends to ignore and explore, all with an accessible and inclusive lens. So let's get started. I'm, I'm thrilled to be joined by my good friend, Craig Pacheco today, a fellow dietitian and founder of Queerly Nutrition, a practice that helps LGBTQ plus folks get reliable, inclusive support around their bodies and food. Craig practices from a health at every size approach, celebrating body diversity, challenging scientific and cultural assumptions around health and wellness, and prioritizing self-care. So today, Craig and I are going to chat a little bit about his work in the area, how he practices from an intersectional perspective, how we can make care more gender inclusive, particularly around working with endocrine disorders. We're going to talk about body image and how that impacts gender diverse individuals. So it's going to be a super packed episode with lots of great discourse and takeaways. So thank you, Craig, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. (laughs) So I like to start my podcasts by asking my guests to share a win of the week, which is always super fun. So tell us and the audience what has been a high point for you over the past week. Well, I would say a high point is probably I finally got some free time and to uh, increase my TV watching time. And I started watching The Bear. Ah, love The Bear. Um, As someone who's worked in restaurants for almost eight years now, it's equally entertaining and triggering, but it's so lovely. And honestly, I need a little bit more TV time, to be honest. And let me know when you get to season two. Oh, I will. Because that is next level in terms of trauma. (laughs) Good. Can't wait to experience that. (laughs) It's like PTSD watching the show. Yeah. Okay, so tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, your background, and what you do at Queerly Nutrition. Yeah, so I'm a registered dietitian. I'm also based out of Toronto as well. I started off my career in a lot of clinical hospital care, and I transitioned into more like education. So I'm actually a contract lecturer at Toronto Metropolitan University, teaching things like counseling, public health nutrition. Thing, you know, professional practice. And I kind of transitioned this, you know, out of hospital care because it definitely wasn't giving me the sense of not only fulfillment, but I also felt that there was more I could do in terms of my skills and the things that I really, truly cared a lot about. So at Queenly Nutrition, what I do is I do mostly a lot of one-on-one client care with it with people in Ontario. So a lot of folks come from different, you know, you know, different backgrounds, uh, with a lot of different challenges and concerns around nutrition. And you know, we work together on that. I would say, you know, a lot of the topics I work with are digestive health, relationship with food, uh, discussions around nutrition, and maybe surgery or hormone changes and a lot of that. And then I also do, you know, some educational sessions with different organizations and, you know, how to make intake forms that are more inclusive and practices that are more inclusive. And I work with a lot of uh, different nutrition professionals on, you know, challenging what we thought is gold standard and how do we apply this nutrition science based on the binary to people who may not Mm -hmm. fit the binary. Mm -hmm. 
And what sparked your interest? Because it sounds like there's a lot of advocacy involved in your unique role and how, you know, the, the role you play in Quarterly Nutrition, but also in how you educate future dietitians and how you create intake forms and, and just the whole client care process. Why are you so passionate about it? Yeah, so I think it started off, well, a, a big bit part of it is that I'm part of the community and I'm, you know, very active in the community and uh, term, especially in Toronto. But it all kind of stems back to when I actually was enrolled in a degree at the University of Waterloo called Sexuality, Marriage and Family Studies. I didn't end up finishing that degree because I got a lot of negative messaging about, you know, not being able to work in the field or not much job opportunities or things like that. And I did love nutrition, so I ended up going more that way. And this was such a perfect way of combining combining my love of nutrition and counseling with as well as gender and sexuality studies. And when I was in my master's at U of T in the public health program, my big project was on the lack of education that people are offered around gender and sexual minorities in the healthcare system. And I got to interview a ton of people, both like nurses, patients, other allied health professionals on their experience, whether being a person from the LGBTQ um, uh, community or, or, you know, uh, like know someone in it. So I think a lot of that, and there was obviously a huge gap. Uh, when I started my practice, actually, I started getting messages from across Canada from people from like Saskatchewan and New Brunswick. And then I also got messages from even from places in the United States seeing like, can you give us some information or can we work with you? Showing that there truly is a giant gap in this area. Totally. And I love that starting in sexuality and gender studies, when you were told that, oh, there's no work here, there, it doesn't matter, essentially, right? There's no work, there's no funding. Instead of turning away from that, you're like, screw it. I'm going to be the one then who brings this to the forefront. I'm going to work even harder to advocate for this. And you kind of use that for a fuel for fire. Yeah. Like. <laughs> and there's this weird thought that like gender doesn't have a place in nutrition, sexuality and nutrition have no links. I've been told many a times that those things are not factors um, for, or social determinants that relate to nutrition for some reason. And we can easily say like, we all experience gender, even if you are not part of the LGBTQ community. We all live in our gender. We all live with our sexuality. And a lot of it influences our decisions or our views around health. So I think it's I think it is definitely something that people are starting to learn and connect more. And it's kind of an exciting area to be in. Oh, absolutely. And just the amount of times I've had, even just with conversations outside of nutrition, right? It's a lot of people are just there's like question marks over their head, right? Like why, how does gender relate to healthcare at all when gender is something we all have an identity with, sexuality, and mm. and it's just about challenging our common narrative and our view. And it's so interesting, we had a workshop actually, I was attending a social justice and dietetics workshop and the facilitator who was an amazing CHC dietitian, community health center dietitian was saying that like, you know, there's this like, I feel like almost this taboo when it comes to talking these things or trying mm-hmm. to change, but it's it's okay to be critical. Like it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to challenge the norm, right? And it shouldn't be something that's scary or intimidating for people. Yeah, for sure. And I find that like the new generation of a lot of, you know, mm-hmm. dietitians and such are starting to question what we thought was gold standard or what mm-hmm. we thought was truth. And I can see that even with my the undergrad students I work with, mm-hmm. in one of the first weeks I was giving nutrition recommendations that were based off of men should get this amount, women should get this amount. And I had a first year put up their hand and say, what if someone is transitioning or like non-binary, like then what recommendations do you give them? So it shows that even students, like first year students are starting to question 
these gold standards or things that maybe we thought or took as you know the truth or and starting to really apply that critical lens uh to nutrition absolutely things are things are changing so with that being said you practice from an intersectional perspective acknowledging factors like ethnicity gender age and ability and how these affect our lived experiences for someone who may be completely new to this term intersectional identities what does that mean yeah so like you know the term of intersectionality it it came out of a really great black woman working in terms of looking at how our identities influence things like how it can either uplift us um, certain systems uplift us or they might obviously oppress us the big names dr crenshaw dr uh, nash are the big names that come up in terms of coining this a lot of it came from like the prison system and who was most likely to go to prison but you know it's been taken and expanded to definitions of how our identities don't live in a vacuum. So when I say, you know, practicing nutrition from an intersectional perspective, it's really important not to forget, you know, other elements, you know, of course, culture and ethnicity are huge. Age is important, but we very really talk about things like ability, uh, neurodiversity, uh, gender and sexuality. And, you know, one thing I talk a lot with my students about is the importance of lived experience as real data. A lot of people, you know, mm-hmm. we there's not much research around certain things. There's not much science behind things, but lived experience in itself is a science and data and information that is just as valuable. So when I say I practice from intersexual perspective, it's really keeping an, an eye on different identities, knowing that people's identities don't just exist, you know, in silos and really trying to kind of think outside the box and really understand how these different parts of people's identities really impact the way they eat, the choices they make or the relationship with their body. Yeah, there's so many layers to us as individuals. Yeah. And one example I love to use is like when we talk about, and this is definitely applicable to a lot of folks who work in PCOS is let's say you were to make a program for young mothers. Like, Mm -hmm. are you for young mothers? Are we, you know, just like we can obviously try to take into a better account ethnicity, but are we taking into account things like are there young parents or non-binary folks who are parents or guardians? You know, there are men who are mm-hmm. can get pregnant mm-hmm. in terms of trans men who are, or people who have uterus. And, you know, there's so many things that when we frame certain things as women's health or mm-hmm. men's health, we can leave out a lot of different people. Yes, for sure. And that's one thing that actually leads to my next question is that one thing that's always on my mind as a dietitian who specializes in PCOS, right? is that there is a huge knowledge gap about how gender diverse people experience endocrine disorders, which quote unquote are typically marketed, labeled, researched as like a women's health condition, right? It's Mm -hmm. a women's issue, a common narrative that I unfortunately hear with PCOS care is like people are like, I don't wanna look like a man, right? And I'm like, what does a man even look like, Mm -hmm. right? What do you, what do you mean, right? So, so, there's so many things to unpack with that population specifically. So how do we, and this is a bit of a loaded question, <laughs> I know, but from what you know with PCOS, quote unquote, women's health or, or men's health, right? Like how do we start to take steps to make these niches, for lack of a better term, more gender inclusive? And how do we start that conversation? Yeah, so I think the one thing that really you know, is important is the fact that we've just acknowledged that there's an extreme gap in research for probably people with PCOS who are not 
maybe identify as women or people who are transitioning or trans folks who have PCOS or non-binary people who have PCOS. So I think the big first step is acknowledging that gap in best practices, in research, in, you know, recommendations. So I think that's a huge part of it. I think another part comes back, like we kind of just mentioned, is not framing PCOS as only a women's health issue and being careful with the messaging and, you know, the way we talk about PCOS. So, you know, not saying, you know, women with PCOS, you could say people with PCOS. I always like to emphasize, like, just because we are being, are practicing from a more gender inclusive lens, we're not erasing the challenges that women have or the, you know, the the, um, things like that. We're just including other people in. It's an additive approach to language. I think a big part of it in terms of how do we make discussions around PCOS more gender inclusive, I think a big part of it is also using terminology, again, that's inclusive, but also comfortable with the person you're working with. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a big, you know, way to practice gender inclusivity in nutrition care is mirroring language. So if someone refers to a body part or refers to something in a certain way that even if it's not something you would normally do, mirroring that language. So for example, if someone wants to talk about menstruation or, you know, maybe their reproductive organs, let's say they don't like to say vagina or vulva, they would say maybe like bottom parts and reflecting that language back because that might be the language they're comfortable with using that like that works well with their gender identity. So those are just a couple ways. And again, it could be one-on-one, but also in terms of, you know, community programs, group programs, public health messaging, it all can apply to that. It's just ultimately comes down to, you know, client-centered care. How do you not assume based on cultural norms, their identity and let trust, trust them, right? And trust their lived experiences. Yeah, Um, it really takes, it's really the best way, like when you look at patient-centered care and mm client-centered care, where you're letting the client lead, of course, the conversation, and you're also letting them lead the language that you're using. It's a part of that, where Mm -hmm. if they use the word partner, use the word partner. If Mm -hmm. they use wife, use wife. Like, it's Mm -hmm. one that thing where... You don't have to erase, like, if you have a same-sex couple and they're okay with using boyfriend, girlfriend, part, wife, husband, you can mirror that language back. It's just really letting the client lead the discussion and the language used. Yes, and it just really shows that you see them. Yes, yes. <laughs> and they, it's, it's something that's so small, seemingly, but people feel so seen, mm-hmm. right? So me and you, it's interesting. We have a lot of discussions oftentimes around disordered eating. We both work with a lot of patients who experience eating disorder, disordered eating, body image work, and form a huge part of our practice. So I'd love to know, how does eating disorders intersect with gender? Yeah, so I think there's this misconception that, you know, a lot of us talk about where, you know, eating disorders are a white woman issue. But there's obviously a lot of focus around queer folks, LGBTQ folks, in terms of, you know, the prevalence of eating disorders in those that community. One thing that, you know, we understand a lot is eating disorders come from history of trauma and history of oppression. And, you know, people who experience oppression and trauma can, you know, develop things like eating disorders. So a lot of it, you know, is related in terms of that. So that's kind of one big element in terms of gender, that relationship between gender and uh, eating disorders and disordered eating. There's also, you know, that huge lack of representation in eating disorders in terms of, you know, gender and sexually diverse people, people who work in that area, people who um, serve in that area. You know, there's definitely a lack of representation and conversation in a lot of places, which make maybe spaces for rehabilitation and spaces for treatment not welcome for Mm -hmm. for people who are maybe, you know, non-binary or people who are, you know, uh, 
you know, gay or bisexual or anything like that. It may just include spaces that are not very welcome. And a lot of rehabilitation places also might be based in religious uh, institutions or religious programs, which again, you know, a lot of LGBTQ folks don't have great relationships with organized religion. So that's another thing to keep in mind as well. And then there's obviously the, the big one where we think of, you know, body image and, you know, physical fitness and disordered eating and, you know, there's a lot of pressure for certain people within the LGBTQ community, so specifically gay men, experiencing things like, you know, body dysmorphia in terms of expecting a level of physicality and a level of muscularity and a level of thinness, which is very unrealistic for a lot of people. Again, not everyone's, even though we are, you know, the LGBTQ plus community or the queer community, whatever language resonates with you we're a bunch of communities within a, a community mm-hmm. we're uh, like intersection intersectionality exactly <laughs> like me i'm a cisgendered gay man but you know i don't know the experience fully of someone who is trans and, you know someone who's trans might be identified straight like there's so many different things and their experience and what they've um encountered and what i've encountered are very different things and just how people in this community or these communities play around with gender, masculinity, femininity, and how that plays into our body image and our body, our you know, how our you know, how we see ourselves and all that. It all comes back to that disordered eating, our eating behaviors, and our relationship with our bodies. Mm-hmm. So lots to unpack in terms of the different layers. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And if you are like a person who doesn't identify with this community and you're not really, you, you like if you can't relate or understand the pressures that some groups might have, ask them to elaborate on it. Ask them to hear their stories. Because again, lived experience is real. It's, you know, a, a lot of times all like just the, the space to talk and the space to unpack is all people really want sometimes. Yes, there is so much power. And that's that's a great point because I think sometimes people feel frozen or paralyzed, right? There's like all these complex issues, so many layers to it. And they're like, I'm afraid of saying, you know, the wrong thing. Or I'm afraid that I'm not knowledgeable in these areas. But you don't know what you don't know. And it's just creating that space to listen, mm-hmm. right? Safe spaces to listen, which is where that change begins. So on that note, as well, when it comes to advocating for inclusive care as a patient right uh, and not as a provider what are some small small ways that patients can do that for themselves in their daily lives yeah the one thing i think that i hope that you know the lgbtq community works on is we really are there to support each other we create our chosen families we you know so reaching out to people in the community asking them for you know referrals to certain practitioners to people they've had good experiences with you know to you know, find a certain person that they can work well with. You know, there are tons of people and tons of resources online. Like if you live in Ontario, Rainbow Health Ontario is an organization that has a directory. There's tons of different uh, LGBTQS communities out there that you can, and like websites where you can search providers that, you know, provide inclusive care who have done specific training, of course. And, you know, that's one thing. But of course, depending on where you live, depending on where you are, you might not have access to maybe a, a, like an LGBT provider or, you know, so it's really about maybe, you know, if you like, you know, talking to your healthcare professional, advocating for yourself, really, you know, 
trying to explain your needs and explain, you know, the importance, the the gender and things like that. I, you know, there's tons of also online services now where you, you're not restricted maybe to the doctors in your neighborhood or the nurses in your neighborhood or the therapists in your neighborhood. So you can get virtual care. And that's why I do virtual care to help provide service to people in remote places, Ontario, you know, some East Coast places, you know, things like that. It really does help bridge a lot of gaps. Um, but I like to emphasize like your safety comes first. If you don't feel safe coming out to your provider because they're going to treat you differently, then don't like that's when coming out becomes a tough thing where if you, your safety comes first. I know that's a privilege of living in downtown Toronto is that we have a lot more representation and openness, but I'm well aware that's not the case everywhere. So putting safety first is super important and, you know, leaning on the community, leaning on your, your family to take care of you. Thank you so much. And I will be linking both Craig's virtual care services in our episode show notes and Rainbow Health in our show notes as well. Thank you so much, Craig, for coming in with us and sharing your expertise. So where can the audience find out more about you and the work that you do at Queerly Nutrition? Yeah, so you can find me at my website at QueerlyNutrition.com. You can find me on Instagram at QueerlyNutrition. And, you know, send me an email, you know, send me a DM. I love talking with people within the community. I love connecting with people. It's what I do. It's what I love to do. And, you know, and if you are in Toronto or at events uh, in Toronto, say hi to me or conferences and would love to, you know, meet a lot of you. And, you know, it's a pleasure to meet new people. Love that. Okay, well, thanks for coming in, Craig. Thanks, Trista. (laughs) Bye, everyone. Bye. Oh, also, for those who are listening, if you like this podcast, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, comment. It is always so much fun to be throwing out this podcast, making this great content, and having amazing guests like my friend Craig here come in. So if you like what you see, it helps a lot with the podcast's growth. Thanks. Bye. Bye. (laughs)